Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Kind of a sick school is this? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Stand up to my little friend! I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A Daniel man! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have the phone. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off! Come to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? <laughs> I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another spectacular episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. It's always fun when you can find a new series of films or even a genre that you didn't know existed. I'm sure some of our listeners have heard or even seen exploitation films, but I'll bet a vast majority of you don't know what one is, or you may not even know that you've already seen one. Exploitation is a unique and fascinating genre that pretty much goes back to when film cameras were first invented. And while there are still exploitation films being made today, the general consensus is that their heyday spanned from the 1960s to the 1980s. On today's episode, we are going to dive into the exploitation genre with a filmmaker who is creating a documentary on such films called Exploit This. So sit back and listen to our discussion and maybe you'll learn something about a genre of film that you previously didn't know existed. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Woo woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. 
Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play, and have fun now. Okay, folks, joining me today is frequent guest co-host filmmaker Chris Esper, and we've also got a special guest that we're very excited to have on the show. He's a writer, director, producer, cinematographer, and editor. He's worked as editor on such projects as Steven Seagal, Lawman, UFC, Ultimate Insider, Four Weddings, My Giant Life, Hey You Say, and Techno Diva, as well as being the set dresser on Stuart Gordon's King of the Ants and the cinematographer on Climate Tarzan. He wrote and directed 2018's Ghoul Scout Zombie Massacre, in which he won an Outstanding Achievement Award as director at the Calcutta International Film Festival. His new project is a feature-length documentary called Exploit This, which explores the vast history of exploitation filmmaking, including the development of exploitation films starting with the birth of cinema itself to its golden age in the 1940s and 50s, its heyday in the 1960s and 70s, its death and then makeover in the 1980s, and ultimately to its revitalization in the present. Exploit This also features interviews with all of the major players in the industry of exploitation filmmaking and will show how low-budget cinema has shaped the independent film industry as we see it today. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Eric Eichelberger. Thank you very much. Awesome to have you here. Glad to have you back as well, Chris. Thank you for having me again. Awesome, awesome. So, Eric, first off, can you explain to our audience what an exploitation film is? Sure. This conception about what an exploitation film is, I think that's sort of part of why we wanted to tell this story, uh, why we wanted to call it Exploit This, the history of exploitation cinema in America. Exploitation doesn't mean that people are being exploited in the movies. Uh, what it means is that subjects are being exploited in the movies. So this kind of goes back to the early days of cinema, even textbook examples like the, uh, the train that's arriving and people are totally freaked out because they think that, you know, they're not used to seeing a moving train. Right. Even that is exploitation cinema because ultimately they're exploiting the train. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really all all film is exploitation. But what, what we're f- referring to specifically is you know a period of time where there was a lot of films exploiting the sort of subculture counterculture going on at the time. So. It might be movies about hippies. It might be movies about biker culture. It might be movies about black culture, like black exploitation films. It might be, you know, movies <laughs> highlighting nuns, nun exploitation. <laughs> it, might be, it might be movies uh, with women in prison. It might be movies with, uh, you know, gore like Blood Feast and Two Thousand Maniacs. Um, you know, but it's, it's something that that is. A hot topic. So, you know, whatever is a hot topic in, in that day and age, for example, Todd Browning's Freaks is a movie that we that we uh, example as an early example of exploitation cinema. You had a lot of freak shows that traveled around the country and uh, were part of that carnival culture of the time. Right. And the movie Freaks just sort of put a lens on that. I mean, that was already there. You know, uh, the biker the biker films, the bikers were already there. Uh, you right. know, so the, the subject is what's being exploited in an exploitation film. 
Excellent, excellent. So what led you to creating a documentary about this genre? Well, I had an interest in this, um, I'd say since I was a teenager. Uh, I, I first got into horror films, probably even earlier than that. Uh, and I watched all the sort of franchise chain horror films, that the Jason and the Freddy and, and the Pinhead and Michael Myers and all this sort of, uh, you know, sequels and franchise stuff. And I found through a couple of sources, one one was Film Threat Magazine. That was a magazine around at the time mm-hmm. that actually I just recently did an interview with uh, Chris Gore, the, the editor of it. Mm-hmm. Nice. And he had a little part in the back where, you know, you could mm-hmm. you could get connected with these people who would bootleg uh, VHS. <laughs> and so this was before the internet. And I saw these crazy titles, you know, and I started to order some stuff from this company. It was a small company called Starlight Video at the time. Hmm. A guy I still run into when I go to horror conventions, and he's still selling stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like Blu-rays and whatnot, and posters, like, you know, this is, you know, at least 20 years later. So, you know, this, this stuff doesn't go away. But at the time, he was... Uh, he was taking Japanese laser discs of movies that were not available and he was duping them onto VHS with a full color uh, cover. Wow. That's awesome. And I would order, you know, movies from him. And I, I remember getting spider baby that way. Wow. I remember getting Italian horror films like Della Morte, Della More, AKA cemetery man that way. I remember <laughs> getting, you know, a lot of really cool. Oh, Peter Jackson's early films. Oh yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh, Peebles that way. Uh-huh. I we're getting into uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky and getting a cop- copy of El Topo that way. Wow. So I got really interested in art films. I got really interested in, in um, you know, beyond just horror films. Right. I got mm-hmm. interested in foreign films. I got interested in films that were weird and different. And uh, I think, you know, shortly after that, I got introduced to something weird video, which yep. is how, uh, I, yeah. how I find how I found Blood Feast and and 2000 Maniacs and some of the really pivotal cult films, uh, exploitation films. And even, you know, as early as 14, I was going to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight. So I had I had a sense of cult movies, you know, from a pretty young age and just an interest in them because they were different than what Hollywood was putting out. And there was, um, I don't know, meteor subjects there, stuff that I was interested in. Uh, and I wanted to dig deeper. Nice. Um, so I, that was sort of the beginning of it. That's, That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I still have the catalog that I had from um, Midnight Video, and I ordered Women's Camp 119 from them and Bad Taste. Nice. Peter Jackson's Bad Taste. So Yeah, Bad Taste, I saw it. There was a little video store in my town. I, I grew up in northwest Indiana in a small town called Valparaiso, and they had a take one video, a little store and they actually had a really good selection of horror films mm. and in the foreign section which I, I started to once i basically rented everything in the horror section I started <laughs> to other sections. and in the foreign section they had that movie bad taste and i rented it loved it and they had the movie santa sangre the um, oh yeah film yeah and those were two i must have rented a whole bunch of times because they were just really cool and just sh- had to show them to all my friends and show them to everybody that's amazing i i still remember seeing bad taste uh when i was a teenager um and uh you know look at the credits and seeing oh and seeing peter jackson directed and like i and you know at that time he had just won the academy award for lord of the rings and i'm like wait a minute <laughs> what it, it just didn't make sense um but i do re- i also remember seeing the cover for 
brain dead, aka dead alive in the USA. Yeah. Um, in the video store, I've never seen the cover. That cover used to scare the ever loving shit out of me with the <laughs> face and the the with the jaw and the fucking uh, and the eyes on the on the uh, gums of the yeah. That was just freaky. <laughs> but then years later, I see it. I'm like, damn, this is like the bloodiest movie I've ever seen, and it was amazing. It was incredible. <laughs> oh my god. You know, it's funny uh, on a slight tangent with Dead Alive. I I went on a date with this girl to see it in Boston when it first came out. Nice. And, um, you know, we saw the movie and we walked out to the car and we literally sat there and laughed for 10 minutes because <laughs> it was absolutely the funniest and goriest film I had ever seen up yes. to that point. Yes. yes. So funny. That's great. <laughs> One liners. So real quick, uh, before we really dive into the subject, you, um, Eric, you had just started mentioning all the different um, or some of the different Cat or subgenres of exploitation films, and I have a list here. I'm just going to go through real quick so I don't bore the audience. But you've got the um, the 1930s and 1940s cautionary films, uh, biker films, as you mentioned, black exploitation, of course, cannibal films, Canuck exploitation, um, car exploitation, chambre films, which are 70s samurai films, giallo films, mockbusters. Mondo films, which are documentaries about you know exotic customs or gruesome death footage like Faces of Death, Nazi exploitation, nudist films, nun exploitation, as you mentioned, Oz exploitation, rape and revenge films, red exploitation, sex exploitation, shock exploitation, slasher films, space exploitation, spaghetti westerns, splatter films, vigilante films, women in prison films, and then there's just a whole bunch of others that are just too numerous, too numerous to list. <laughs> so this That's is a, a good... go ahead. Oh no, I, I think that's a pretty uh, pretty good exhaustive list. I would love to get that list from you. Oh yeah, I, I got it off Wikipedia, but I added a few in that I had found you know, that, uh, <laughs> that I saw recently. Because you know, I'm always discovering more. I mean, I've been discovering. I wasn't super familiar with William Griffay, and I did an interview with him for the documentary recently. And I've been watching all of his films because they put out a great Blu-ray set, and I got the Blu-ray set uh, of his films and. You know, you mentioned, what did you call it? Uh, blockbuster exploitation. You know, his movie yeah. Stanley is basically like a, you know, a Jaws with snakes. Right, right. <laughs> and then the movie Grizzly, which we cover in our film, is just basically Jaws with, with a grizzly bear. You know, so you, <laughs> and, and he did it and he did a proper Jaws ripoff. That's hilarious. And the asylum is always doing these these kind of films, like uh, <laughs> well, they did snakes on a train. You know, that was a really obvious one. Right. Then <laughs> <laughs> capitalizing on uh, you know the the whole Shark Week culture with Sharknado was obviously a brilliant move for them. Oh right, I, right. Anyone really saw that coming? How that might explode into such a larger cultural phenomenon? And that's an interview we're going to do uh, shortly. Is is the director of Sharknado? Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I remember seeing Great White in the theater, which was an Italian ripoff back in like 78 or somewhere around there. Yeah. And that was awful. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved it. Yeah, the Italian ripoffs are pretty great, too. (laughs) So who are some of the great pioneers of exploitation cinema? Well, the first person that we interviewed uh, in our whole process of making the film is David F. Friedman. And he was a producer in the, in, he started out in the, in the fifties and he worked for a guy named Kroger Babb, who uh, is legendary exploitation producer. And Kroger Babb made a movie called mom and dad that I think made more money than any movie like that at the time. And it had a, a live birth, birth of a baby reel in the film. 
And wow. so it was shocking, you know, especially for the time. And the way that Kroger Babb promoted his films was, or the way he sort of skirted the censorship at the time was he, he came up with these ways in which it was really educational. He separated the audiences out into men and women. And he sold these like sex ed books after, you know, they'd show the film mom and dad. So it, it was really, it was really kind of just exploiting venereal disease or, or exploiting like, you know, topic of sex or just even talking about sex you know at the time right so uh, david f friedman learned from kroger bab he gave up a good job at paramount uh which is which is in his book youth in babylon which was sort of the starting point for us we, i read the book youth in babylon and i was like this book's amazing people have to hear this story <laughs> and uh so we started out sort of you know asking questions that i had, had uh, gotten from youth in Babylon. But basically, yeah, he, he was inspired by Kroger. He quit a, quit a good job at Paramount to work for Kroger. And then he went into business uh, with Herschel Gordon Lewis and they made the prime time and they made a whole bunch of uh, nudie, what we call nudie cutie films and nudist camp films. And then they went on to make, you know, many films in the genres that you're talking <laughs> about, you know, including Blood Feast, which was sort of a huge standout hit of a film really the first film to accentuate gore in a horror film everything else before that even psycho if you look at it is is pretty tame in comparison to blood feast sure right. it really kind of hit, hit a nerve there you know and they capitalized mm-hmm. on it bring you know they, they handed out barf bags and you know they said that people are going to have a heart attack you know, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they, they went on Herschel made a lot more gore films uh, throughout his career and right. Dave moved more exploitation and he did a number of, you know, fun and interesting exploitation films in different genres, but a lot of sexploitation, um, Nazi exploitation. He did uh, the movie Love Camp 7, which I think was probably the first Nazi exploitation film that I've ever heard of. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and Dave Friedman really had a whole career in exploitation, and, and he came from the carnival business. As a, as a few people um, that I've spoken to, uh, Ted Michaels is another one. He kind of came from the the carnival business. He and and magic. He was a he was a, a magician, you know. Wow. And so yeah, I think a lot of it wow. kind of comes from that that world, the carnival world, the, the magic world, and that well, sort of same hype accompanies an exploitation film. Well, and that seems to make a lot of sense, too. I mean, even uh, somebody like a William Castle, who would, uh, you know, uh, do all these things, you know, in the theater to entice the audience, uh, the smell of vision, you know, and setting off, uh, uh, what, what was it? It was like, it was like a gas bomb. The Tingler? The Tingler. Yes, 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 the Tingler. <laughs> and so, I, yeah, so, I mean, I, you could argue that this genre, um, this genre is, you know, sort of falls into that whole category of, like, uh, Carnival because it feels like a show a lot of the time with producers like like William Castle so that's really fascinating right right and wasn't Kroger Bab was he part of the 40 Thieves yeah the 40 Thieves are, are, are someone that uh, is a group of people that Dave refers to in his book and also in our interview with him and those are sort of those shysters you know they were doing road shows they were uh, one great story is a story about a filmmaker named S.S. Millard. His his um, son is Nick Phillips and, and, and kind of stayed within the family and made exploitation films too. <laughs> but S.S. Um, Millard 
rolls into town with this, in this story. He rolls into town. Dave tells it better, of course, but with these uh, 35, a couple of 35 millimeter exploitation prints in his trunk. And he, he finds a theater in the town. And then he says, we really would like to, to book this theater. Can we have a look at it? And he does it on a Friday night. And of course, the guy is like trusting and says, OK, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you the keys to the property. You check it out and then you can do a rental for us. And so as soon as he gets those keys, he starts to, you know, remake the marquee and bring those <laughs> and just sell tickets and grind the, 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 the movies, you know, basically 24 hours for the whole weekend. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, cleans up and, and gives the keys back on Monday and, and goes to the next town. And that's, that's the sort of shysty, fun, ridiculous stories uh, that Dave tells about the 40 thieves of exploitation cinema. That's hilarious. That's amazing. That's <laughs> awesome. And that's how they sort of got around the Hayes Code, too, was by doing movies like Mom and Dad, where they, they were quote-unquote educational films, and people really went there just to see a live birth. You know, they wanted to see the baby coming out of the vagina because you were never allowed to see a vagina in the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really uh, the early period is full of fun stories like that. Well, I mean, if you take a look at the earliest nudist camp pictures, they were genuinely, um, you know, nudist documentaries like one mm-hmm. might be on, you know, Discovery now or something like that. And then before long, they said, oh, these nudists are not that attractive. We're just going to cast some nudists. <laughs> then they started casting <laughs> nudists. <laughs> and of course, they choose women with big breasts and, you know, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and of course people are loving that and they're going to see, you know, these nudist camp educational pictures like Doris Wishman made and Dave Friedman and, and Herschel made as well. Nature's Playmates films like that or, or nude on the moon. Well, now we've got the nudists and they're on the moon, you know, like it's, you know, the, the, the leap, uh goes pretty quickly and i think you know quickly it kind of goes if you look at the history it kind of goes into the nudie cutie which is russ meyer made the the, what's arguably the first what we call a nudie cutie film uh the immoral mr tease and the whole (laughs) is you know it's very innocent you know it's like okay there's these women and they're just having a little fun hosing themselves off or in some sort of situation where they <laughs> and the guy uh just sort of happens upon them oh look look at what i'm finding you know and it, it's so trite now you know but at right. the time, like actually something new i mean there was really not that did not exist yeah it just sort of the history kind of like okay we got away with this so what can we get away with next right you know like Right. How, how can we push it a little bit? And that's one of the themes in the documentary is sort of the First Amendment and the Hayes Code, like you mentioned. And how do we get around that? And how do we, um, you know, make a little bit more risque films until we get to 1972 and Deep Throat sort of um, the movie Deep Throat kind of blows it all open, you know, <laughs> and right. <laughs> And then, you know, some of the filmmakers, some of the filmmakers that we spoke to who made a lot of adult films in the 70s did not want to discuss that. And they did not want that to be their legacy. And really, you know, Dave, Dave, I think, made about six straight up adult films uh, or a lot of his films were adult films, I guess, or X rated. But they uh, 
hardcore pornography films. And he uh, he said, you know, there was no more at that point for, for in his view, there was no more sizzle. Right. And so it was just like you just you just gave him, you know, the 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 final reel, <laughs> you know, like in the first, <laughs> in the first reel. So like you know, there's just. You know, there was for him. There was nowhere to go from there, and he kind of backed out at that point and uh, and started to get back into the carnival business, oh, which is where he wow. Wanted. So uh, yeah, he he went out. He left Hollywood and he went to Anniston, which is where we filmed him, Anniston, Alabama. And uh, yeah, he he you know made his money in in the carnival business after that. Wow, and again, things so like cool. uh, he maintained a. A spot on the adult, I think it's the Adult Cinema Association or something like that. Uh, and he he went to conventions. I mean, I met him initially at a convention where he had a table with something weird, and he was signing his uh, movies that were just then coming out on DVD. So, and he wow. came to my festival that I did in, in 2004. We had him, and we had Roger Corman as well. Wow at the festival and we showed his movie she freak so he still was involved in you know hyping his older films but he but yeah the reason that he sort of stopped making films was that you know he felt like um there was no more sizzle after. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, amazing that's awesome so who you mentioned roger corman who are some of the other giants in the exploitation cinema uh, genre oh sure yeah well roger corman is huge you know because he's a producer he's produced so many films um and you know speaking with roger was just an absolute honor but yes we uh we interview well i mentioned ted michaels he, he made yep. the, the movie uh, astro zombies uh he made um girl in gold boots he made some really cool fun 60s and 70s exploitation movies yeah uh, and we we did a long interview with him. We spent a few days in Las Vegas at his um, house and his studio, and we, we spoke to his wife. That's amazing because he just passed away yeah. like within the last five years, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. So and how? Actually, how? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Really passed as well. I did another interview with him shortly before he passed. He was having a lot of back pain, and I think it was all from years of you know just being a strong man, like when he was younger and oh, yeah. physical feats. So and how long I, have you been working on this? Uh, well, that, we've been at it about 14 years, just collecting wow. the interviews. Wow. And, um, you know, this year we aim to, to finish the film. So we've been actually doing a lot lately and yeah. expanding upon the, the, the later period stuff. Uh, in fact, there's a guy I'm going to interview next week that's sort of a, a modern-day exploitation filmmaker, and we're interviewing people um, from the 80s and 90s, um, sort of B-movie craze right now and the early video stuff. And then there's a few people that we just had never gotten. Like, um, what's the guy's name? Gordon. Bird-Eye Gordon? Oh, no, Bird-Eye Gordon I wanted to get, but he, uh, and he's still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. But I'm not sure what kind of shape he's in. I, I was in touch with his daughter and I've kind of sent a few emails, but I have not heard anything back. Hmm. I did meet him once, um, and he was going to come and do a, a, a festival. And I, I shot a little bit of video uh, for my buddy's festival, and because he couldn't come because he had, he had um, broken a leg or something oh, wow. like that. So, wow! So yeah, he he was a uh, he was all um, 
he was unable to get on a plane and go yeah. out. Uh, anyway, we, we just did that movie with William Griffey and uh, we're, we're setting up a few more. There's still some, some people that were really involved back in the day. Uh, Andy Romanoff is another guy that I'm trying to get in touch with. I haven't gotten in touch with him yet, but he was a kid on Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs and like did a lot of the grunt work on these films. So actually he'll be a really interesting interview. Wow. Uh, so if anybody that's mm. listening wants to get in touch uh, and has more people, um, Graydon Clark is who I was thinking of. We're going to do an interview with in the next couple of weeks. And he made the movie um, Black Shampoo without warning. He did a lot of cool exploitation movies in the nice. 70s. He also worked nice. with Alec Hansen. So as someone who's also making a documentary, you mentioned you've been doing this for 14 years. Uh, how many, uh, do you happen to know how many hours of footage that you have? Gosh, I wouldn't even be able to say. It's a lot. <laughs> I, can only, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, like thousands of hours of footage. I mean, wow. really a ton. We've been going through, we've been going through all just the interviews, but we've got tons of B-roll and archival footage. Other people we couldn't interview because they were deceased before we started. So we're collecting sure. archival interview stuff for people like doris wishman and and russ meyer who who had passed on before we started right right that's incredible there's quite a few people who have passed on since we since we started the project sure right Uh, including you mentioned ted um but also um ray dennis steckler who we interviewed in las vegas oh yeah Uh, we did one of the last interviews that he ever did he did the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Right. Really? really? Wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we, we have an interview with him and he's, in, he, he was, was in Las Vegas. Uh, Joel Reed, who made the movie blood sucking freaks. Oh, nice. 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 <laughs> uh, he, he's, he actually passed away of COVID very early. Oh, in- oh wow. Yeah. He, um, he was in a, a rehab center in Queens and then the New York thing hit. Oh, that's too bad. Jesus. Yeah. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we 
don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on the Bloody Pit. So join me for the Bloody Pit. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Monster Kid Radio! What about like Joe Dante and John Landis? I mean, nowadays they're not considered that, but they started off as exploitation filmmakers. That's true, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I've had a little bit of a moral dilemma, honestly, interviewing John Landis just because of Twilight Zone. Right. Everything that happened on the the Twilight Zone movie. But I have seen him in a lot of other documentaries. I would really um, like to get Joe Dante. I've Mm -hmm. approached Dante a few different ways. So if Joe Dante is listening, we really would like to interview you. (laughs) We'd love to get Joe Dante. Um, He's a very nice guy also. When we were doing our festival, he uh, lent us a print of um, Rock and Roll High School that he had. And we had Mary Warnoff. Mary Warnoff is in the documentary, in our documentary. Oh, excellent. And we did that interview pretty recently, actually. And she talks a lot about um, Paul Bartel. And I was just going to ask about that. Yep. She talks a lot about their relationship. She talks about her relationship with Andy Warhol. It's really, really fascinating. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I just recently rewatched, uh, Edie Raul and, uh, of course, great movie, you know? Uh, so, yeah. So that, that's awesome. Um, there's a lot of, you know, queer filmmakers in the exploitation genre and, and he was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and but also John Waters is someone that we yes. have spoken with as well, uh, or that we um, have some interview stuff with as well. Nice. And um, Dave Dakota, I don't know if you know who that is, but he he did a lot of really cool um, movies in the eighties, uh, like the Slime Bowl Bolorama. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, the all the all the really cool movies that have um, Linnea Quigley and and uh, Michelle yep. Bauer and. Yep. And bring Stevens. Did you get uh, a chance to talk to Stephanie Rothman? You know that she's on my list, and I think that I don't have a good contact. Okay. So if you've got a good contact, please put me in touch. Yeah, she's on my list. We've we've tried to talk to as many women as we can because it's pretty male heavy. Uh, you know, with it with right. the exception of sure. uh, Roberta Finlay and and um, Doris Wishman. Um, Roberta Finlay, we don't have a proper interview with. We have some archival stuff, so I would love to do a proper interview uh, with Roberta Finlay, who is still around. Right. Recently, we did an interview with Debbie Roshan, who was in a couple of Roberta's movies, including the movie Lur- Lurkers, which was actually the first 
like basically the first movie she ever acted in was this Roberta Finlay movie. Oh wow! Wow. Uh, you know, she went on to do a lot of really big trauma movies and stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Juliet. Yeah. Did Did you uh, uh, Did you also try to talk to Lloyd Kaufman? Speaking of which, we're uh, there's a guy who reached out to us recently because I haven't had much luck reaching Lloyd, and I'm I'm curious if you know. Hopefully, his health and everything is good because I haven't. Yeah unusual not to hear back from him i have worked on trauma movies in the past and oh, even wow. with, um ghoul scout zombie massacre in yeah. new york uh, lloyd came to the screening and he was super nice and he invited us to the um to the studios the next day and they gave yeah. us really cool swag and, and that's awesome that's, that's incredible yeah and wow. you know he's, he's always super nice so i think he either he must be busy or not feeling well or something um and hopefully yeah. uh, hopefully he's well right yeah, um, yeah yeah but yeah i haven't i mean could just be busy honestly and so like um i want to set something up with lloyd so he's another one if he's listening i'd really like to uh, <laughs> yeah do an interview even if we're doing it on zoom we've done some interviews we've done some socially distant and outside and then we like we did mary warnoff that way and fred nice. Olin. oh yeah yeah awesome. awesome we've also um been doing some where basically someone on their end is filming and then we, and then we zoom and uh, we did that um, Debbie Roshan interview that way as as well as the William Griffey interview we did recently, uh, which was such a great interview. That guy's got amazing stories. If you're not familiar with his films, you should definitely check out like Mako Jaws of Death nice. or um, <laughs> nice. you should definitely check out um, Stanley. It's a really, Oh yeah. Fun. Yeah snake exploitation movie he's like you know uh did a lot of his stuff at the everglades in in florida and it, so it's all sort of these weird animal movies <laughs> but he did some racing movies and stuff like that as well he's he's done a variety of different um movies he, he worked with rita hayway with any and yeah. with, uh, mickey rooney yeah nice. yeah he's 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 kind of an interesting character in in the story of exploitation and Graydon Clark, like I said, we're going to do an interview with him, and he he worked with Al Adamson, who's who's you know there there was just that big Al Adamson set that came out, and that Al Adamson documentary, which is really cool, um, which was a guy who I interviewed for our documentary, whose name is David Gregory. His company's called Severin, and they they put a lot. Of cool oh stuff. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he yeah, also okay. talked with. Um, yeah, yeah. Joe Rubin in our documentary, and he he has a company called Vinegar Syndrome, and they put yeah. out oh yeah, yeah okay yeah. Uh, exploitation movies. So we talk with distributors too. Um, we're trying to get an interview with Charlie Band. Oh um, yeah. A, oh yeah. We'll have who is you know obviously had a big hand in the distribution, and then also because a lot of people like producers were never on the sets of these movies. Uh, you know the directors and the actors. Like we we talked to Brick Stevens who's been in like 130 nice. movies, probably the most yeah. prolific movie actress there is. Yeah. Nice. And uh, Fred Olin Ray is probably the most prolific uh, sort yeah. of director. I mean, he's done like yeah. 100 something movies. It's crazy. It's incredible. It's all, yeah. Oh, yeah. all kinds of stuff. My introduction to Fred Olin Ray was his children's movies. When I was a kid, I had seen Invisible Dad and Invisible Mom back to back. They were like in blockbuster I remember what caught my attention with Invisible Dead in particular was it had the anticular cover where you would move it a little bit and then it would like the image would change. So oh, that's cool. 
So it had like a, a dad with his son. First he's visible, <laughs> then he's invisible, and like the kid looks shocked. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, I gotta watch this. And uh, <laughs> and uh, but then I want, but then looking at his credits, the guy has like two, three hundred credits under his belt. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I can't even tell you the number, but he worked with people like, like he very early on worked with uh, Ted Michaels, and he really? was buddies with uh, David Friedman. In fact, he went out, like I said, he with Dave uh, retired, he went to Anniston, Alabama. Several yeah. summers, Fred Olin Ray uh, went out there and ran one of the joints, like one of yeah. the, um, they call them joints, the, right. the yeah. sort of games that people play in the carnival, like, you know, whether it's throwing a ball or, or even if uh, the, the places for food are called joints. Yeah. So, um, Fred Olin Bray went out and ran one of the joints like several stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Fred Fred Olin Bray is also in the uh, is also he's also in the world of wrestling. He, you know, he has like a wrestling promotion. Yes, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he he was also friends with um, uh, Gary Graver, who was uh, Orson Welles' cinematographer later in his life, and uh, he himself also made quite a few exploitation movies. Yeah, you know what he. Um, Gary Graver, who I wish I wish we would have been able to get to, he's also passed, passed on. away. Yeah, yeah. Um, shot a bunch of uh, Al Adamson's movies. Really? Uh, yeah, Gary wow. Graver shot a bunch of Al Adamson's movies. So I mean, he really kind of was all over. You know, I mean, he was shooting yeah. for Orson Welles, uh, his last movie, but he also did a bunch of exploitation movies. I think he also worked with with Graydon Clark. I think he also worked with. Um, you know, several of the people that, that, that we were talking about. Right. Yeah. Yes. Ted Michaels mostly shot his own movies because he was a really good cinematographer. In fact, he shot sure. some of Ray's movies. And yep. then uh, um, I think it was Battle Cat or one, one of uh, uh, Ted's movies uh, for Fred Olin Ray worked on. And he, he tells the stories and stuff about Ted uh, in, in the footage we got with him. Sure. sure, that's great. Was that's it awesome. Al Adamson? Al Adamson's the one that had the tragic ending where he invited the what was it like the homeless guy in to do some construction on his house, and then they they found him, you know, a day or two later in the cement. Yeah, they, what happened? Wow. Uh, really tragic and really ironic too, because he he made gruesome films and then they had this gruesome ending to his life. Right. Uh, yeah, that story gets really well told in David Gregory's uh, documentary about Al Adamson. But what, what what happens basically is, yeah, there's a guy who I think was sort of down on his luck and was a um, a handyman, essentially. And uh, Al Adamson needed a bunch of handyman work done. And this guy, I think he kind of envied Al Adamson. He, he really, um, like, wanted to... B.E.L. Adamson. Wow. <laughs> wow. So he, he went as far as like wearing his clothes and stuff like that. Oh, that's and, creepy. Uh, yeah. And he eventually tried to, you know, tried to take his identity and, um, you know, um, sort of live as Al Adamson by murdering Al Adamson. And yeah, he put him underneath this um, spa that he, he was building. He was building this spa for, for Al. And then he ended up murdering him and 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 burying his body wow. in, in the cement, like right. the, you know, poured cement over the, the buried body. So really gruesome stuff, yeah. but really really great documentary because it not only 
shows, you know, that sort of um, gruesome event or how that unfolded, but it also talks about his whole career and, you know, his, his um, sort of role in the exploitation. One really funny story about Ted that, that uh, Fred Olin Ray said was like, you know, nobody would use shorter short ends than Ted Michaels. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the short ends that nobody wanted that would just give it away. And he'd yeah. say, okay, we're going to do a take. You know, and then he would, he would not even like um, have time to slate. That <laughs> 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 he would not even have the time to slate. That's hilarious. That's awesome. Or you would try to get the slate, you know, like, like, okay, slate, you know, like, as you're rolling, and then just like, you know, and basically it was because the short ends were so short, right? That nobody would use them except Ted. And uh, I thought that was a really funny. So those those kind of things about low budget filmmaking, like in in Blood Feast, they did all their effects in camera, you know, because like the the effects that you would do at the lab in the 60s were, were expensive. It wasn't like you could just do that at home sure. on your computer like you right. could now. So sure. every effect, every fade or anything you were doing, it had to be um, done at the lab and it was quite expensive. So they would film things even sequentially and also do the in-camera effects when they were filming Blood Feast so that they could save a little money at the lab. Dave was a proficient sound person because... You know, he basically didn't want to hire a sound guy. And Herschel shot all his own movies for the same reason. So they had their own sort of built-in crew with just the two of them. They, Dave did the sound. Herschel did the picture. And then Herschel would also do the entire score. Like, he was a really good musician. Wow. That's incredible. So he did the score for, for pretty much all of his movies. He did the score. <laughs> I, I have a Herschel Gordon-Lewis confession to make here. Back in 89 and 90, I worked at Blockbuster Video, and I swapped out. You know how the, like you had the videotape, but then they had these cases that went over them. I mm-hmm. swapped out The Wizard of Gore with The Wizard of Oz. And <laughs> someone rented The Wizard of Oz, and this guy comes back in the store, and he like hands it back to me. He goes, yeah, he's like, I, I opened this up, and I went to put in the VCR. He goes, but I realized it was the wrong movie before I put it in. <laughs> the Wizard of Gore. <laughs> That's incredible. That's funny. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God the kids didn't get to see it, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Eric, earlier you mentioned um, B-movies. But now there's a difference between B-movies and exploitation films, right? Where B-films are driven sort of by narrative or cheap storytelling, but exploitation films don't really care about the story. It's more about the spectacle or, you know, what they can see that you won't get in a regular movie. Is that correct? Well, B-movie is a little bit of a misnomer, too, because the the, the original meaning of, of B-movie had nothing to do with genre. Uh, it had nothing to do with um, how cheap or not cheap the movie was. But it was really just the movie that would play at a double feature or a drive-in with the A-movie, um, which was usually a, yeah, it was a movie with a bunch of a uh, list talent but the b movie could actually have been any movie that they chose to play with the with the a movie it could have been just an older film that also had good talent right uh, typically they were shorter because they people only had so much attention span and yet you wanted two films 
So it was basically just really what they called whatever movie you paired with the A movie. So the movie that came second when you were doing a double bill. Right. Uh, and that mm-hmm. was the the meaning of B movie. And I think it got a different meaning uh, probably in the late 70s, early 80s. And it kind of came to mean a low budget film or genre low budget film. Mm-hmm. And it sort of um, kept that meaning, you know, ever since. But that was not the original meaning, no, of a B movie. Uh, in terms of what you're saying, yeah, an exploitation movie definitely is exploiting um, the subject matter. What did you say exactly about a B movie? Well, uh, B movies were more driven by narrative um, and sometimes cheap storytelling, but exploitations were more driven by the spectacle that they could deliver. Yeah, I think that the early B movies were nothing more, you know, nothing different than a Hollywood movie, except for that, you know, they might not have had the same A-list cast. It might have been able to be uh, done less expensively and shorter. But yeah, they were certainly like, um, you know, in the film noir, there were tons of, of things that were called B movies. Sure. They were story driven, like you said, um, and and they were not they were not necessarily exploitation films. Um, so yeah, that that's a sort of an older meaning. But yeah, in the uh, in the eighties and beyond, they've kind of come to to mean a uh, schlocky or or cheap low right. budget film, mm. often with action or sex or some combination of action and sex. And certainly, there are a lot of um, really cool filmmakers. Uh, what's the guy I'm thinking of right now? David something. He made a ton of great. Oh, like um, Deadly Prey. Yeah, you know that. Film? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the director of that movie, I would have really liked. Oh, David Pryor, I would have really liked to talk to, but he's passed away. But uh, if if you if anyone has a connection for Ted Pryor, I'd really like to talk to. Him. <laughs> in all of David Pryor's films, but yeah, those are to me those are the sort of the ultimate like you know, trauma maybe too, like Class of Newcomb High, right. like those movies right. sort of fit the new meaning of of B movie really well because right. they were for low budgets they had a lot of action and usually some kind of boobs or sex and that combination is what people think of now when they when they hear b movie right well that's true and like back when when the movie companies owned the theaters they created the b film like you said the second film so sort of like a record you got the a side and the b side and the second film was to create double features so that the the movie theater owners could make more money they could charge right, more because exactly. you're seeing two films. And a good example is Val Luton because he was part of the B unit. A lot of these companies had B units and he was part of the B unit at RKO. But his movies aren't, you know, bad movies or awful. It just meant that they couldn't buy any new sets. They had to use what was there. He had to work with the title that they gave him. He had a limited budget, but it was still, you know, his creativity make, makes his movies still like amazing films. That's exactly right. Yeah, they often were working with sets that were already existing. Mm. And, you know, that's true of Roger Corman, too, going into the 80s and 90s. So he would use reuse the same sets <laughs> over and over in different contexts. Like, um, you know, there's there's a there's a bunch of movies on that. Um, what's, what's the Star Wars rip up beyond the um, Star Crash? Oh, Star Battle, Crash. Battle Beyond the Stars. That'll be on the stars. Yeah. That set is in so many movies. <laughs> and if you watch the different Roger Corbin movies throughout the 80s and the early 90s, you're like, oh my God, that's that same set. Right. Yeah. And even the ships, <laughs> I think, in that too. Kind of like, you know, changed it a bit. Um, I actually did work um, fairly recently on a Roger Corman movie. 
uh, called Death Race 2050. And it was a uh, sequel to the movie Death Race 2000. Wow, nice. And uh, he shot a lot of the movie in Peru. And, you know, he had all these Peruvian extras that are supposed to be Americans, which I thought was... (laughs) (laughs) They were clearly, you know, not like your typical Americans, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, yeah, they did a really cheap job with the cars and stuff. And it was just, you know, I mean, it was like Death Race 2000 is a cheap movie for the time, you know, but sure. this movie is so much cheaper. It is. <laughs> it's, it's actually pretty hilarious. Like, um, that's awesome. That's, that's working at his uh, studio was fun because I'd go into a room, you know, it was, it was huge. Like, I'd go into a room. And there would be like a like a scanner on or something like that, like a like a computer scanner. And I know nobody used that scanner for like, you know, ten or fifteen years because it was like really old technology. <laughs> I'd be like, why is this thing even turned on? But then <laughs> other moments, I would go, I would go to the. Um, it's like a secretary that worked with Roger, and I would say, we really need to get um, some more label uh, labels for the label maker, and she would say. I don't know. That's pretty expensive, Eric. You're using a lot of labels because <laughs> 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 we were doing we were doing post production. Me and another guy were doing post production on this uh, film, Death Race 2050. But it ended up being a really cool film, and I think largely because they must have spent some money in um, online because the online on that film actually looked beautiful. Huh. Like I was really surprised huh. at how. Um, you know, looking at the footage that they shot at, in Peru and then going and looking at the final film, I thought, my God, this is really edited well. It was really like, um, you know, the, the online ended up being really cool. Like, I don't know, the, the effects, like the post effects that they did, uh-huh. tons of post effects and they were well done. You know, like nice. they had clearly used a legitimate laboratory. Wow. Uh, to do their post effects. And I thought, my gosh, they could have just spent a little more money. <laughs> That's and hilarious. saved themselves in post, but, you know, ultimately <laughs> it did end up being kind of a fun film. I think you could watch it on Amazon Prime. Nice. Um, cool. Probably, no, for a while it was on Netflix, but I doubt it's on Netflix still. It might be, but for a while it was on Netflix, but I think it, you could certainly watch it still on Amazon Prime or maybe even Tubi. Nice. Death nice. Race 2050. It was fun to work for Roger, and he was really sweet. And um, his wife, Julie Corman, who did, like, um, Chopping Mall. She produced yep. Chopping Mall and a lot wow. of really cool um, movies in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, she, was, she was a trip. She was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, everyone, it was just, uh, you know, it was also kind of like a trip back in time because there'd be room room full of, like, really, you know, uh, crazy props from older movies and things like that. Posters, props. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Just sort of wander around sometimes. And, you know, <laughs> moment and like, like, what's in this room, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about black exploitation movies, which is, a, you know, it's a hugely popular subgenre of exploitation. And my understanding is that it, Really, the height of it was from 71 to 76, uh, maybe starting with Melvin Van Peebles' you know, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. But right. can, you, can you tell us what set the exploitation films films apart as a subgenre? Yeah, well, the really, I mean, the big thing in terms of 
history is like we there were not really opportunities like that for black actors before the black exploitation films. There were some certainly, you know, um, like as porters or in supporting roles like that, but uh, or smaller roles. But black actors did not have lead roles, you know, right. like you you were pointing out with Sweet Sweet Back or um, Shaft or some of the really yep. big Dolomite. Uh, black- Films. Dolomite. I mean, Dolomite <laughs> was a black director, all black cast. And, you know, that just wasn't happening at that time. The, this was something brand new. And I think, uh, you know, when I've talked to people about the uh, who went to see black exploitation films, I think it was quite mixed. The mm-hmm. audience was not an all black audience, you know, and right. it was, was not an all white audience either. It was a, it was a mixed audience um, watching black exploitation films. But yeah, I think that you had early opportunities for for black actors uh, in a way that you hadn't seen before. So this was really a pivotal moment in in film history, hmm. and I I just think that's really cool. Um, yeah, and yeah. There's a lot of you know sort of um, big standout black exploitation movies that we talk about in the documentary. Uh, yeah. We interview Jack Hill, and he did the movie Coffee, which was a huge sort of smash success uh black exploitation film right um we interview larry cohen who did uh, hell up in harlem mm, yes and he did a number of, of black caesar he did some really cool like standout black exploitation films as well mm-hmm. but yeah all the all the sort of um different exploitation filmmakers were making black exploitation films because they were doing well in theaters there was also sort of i guess you would call it an exposure to to black culture that you know you weren't seeing at the time sure so it was um you know it was interesting it was interesting for everybody i think it was ultimately good you know a good thing um that you had black actors in uh lead roles well absolutely and you know these kind of films sort of like what you were saying before is they they gave voices to people that didn't have a voice and mm-hmm. they sort of became figures that were heroic to regular people, but there were groups like the NAACP that rallied against them because they were like, oh, you're stereotyping, you're you're portraying all men as, you know, the lead characters as pimps or convicts, and they thought it was damaging to the image of the black man, but, you know, but then you have people like Spike Lee and John Singleton who, who they've sort of had a renaissance of those kind of movies, and they, they grew up on those, and they were influenced, and they would add in their own little their own almost uh, commentary on the original black exploitation films and just make their films something bigger and better, you know? Yeah. And those two, um, those two filmmakers that you mentioned, I mean, they almost make modern black exploitation films. Right. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, when you're talking about black culture, you know, you, you want to talk about all of it. I mean, that's right. The, you know, you talk about the good, you talk about the bad, you talk about all of it, I would think. Right. But yeah, under there was blow, there was blowback for sure. And there was blowback for, you know, everything in exploitation. They, they've, Dave feels like the publicity was good. You know, whatever, whatever it was, you know, um, people, uh, I know that he had a particular feminist group that was would protest his films at the theater. And he would get protesters out to protest the protesters. (laughs) (laughs) Knights of Columbus, I know, went out and protested his his gore films for for, for, you know decent. And then he was a he was a Mason, like a a Freemason. So he would get the Masons to come out, and they would protest the Knights of Columbus. 
and, <laughs> and it was all good publicity in his in his view. It was oh, all yeah. just okay, let's yeah. you know, let's raise up a stir, you know, let's um <laughs> you know, people are gonna see that and they're gonna want to see it. Right. Uh, so you know, probably um the NAACP protesting uh some of these black exploitation films were actually good for the for right. the the actors and for the filmmakers, you know, and for the producers. Yeah. That's great. And, you know, it's funny because they they had introduced sort of a new style of funk in the music and their movies were fast paced. And that's that's, you know, half the reason why I love black exploitation movies, because of the music and and the action mm-hmm. through the whole thing. I don't care if it's low quality or amateurish. I, I love it. I find I'm entertained. And that's my criteria. Am I entertained? Yes. I'm coming back for more. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i love you know we just we just i have a little movie night crew on saturdays where we watch movies on zoom right now we were watching them you know before in person nice and we just watched Graydon clark's black shampoo that was such a cool film and we watched all the dolomites this year yeah uh nice. you know from the very beginning and there's even like a dolomite from like the 90s we watched there's a bunch of dolomite films yeah they're all fun in their own way. Well, and especially know, the Eddie Murphy version where he's the guy, um, what's his name, that created Dolomite. Yeah, the Eddie Murphy film that came out last year was really cool. Yeah. It really, kind of, um, from what I could tell anyway, it really kind of told the real story. Yeah. Absolutely. And got it to a broader audience because, you know, a lot of people watching that Eddie Murphy film probably don't know who Rudy Ray Moore was, you know. Right, like, right, you know, right they're interested in watching this Eddie Murphy movie and it, you know, I think it won some awards. It was, you know, really well received. Yeah, absolutely. Hey folks, I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven podcasts, podserve.fm podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodSurf's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. 
Check them out. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel OSI 74 to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, and uh, this just sort of is an example, about what happened with the film Day of the Woman and how they sort of changed it enough that it made it a hit? That's a, a Doris film? Uh, I don't know. Day of the Woman ended up, they changed the title to I Spit on Your Grave. Oh, okay. No, that's a Mir Zarchi film. Right. Yeah, that, um, I think the reason that movie was such a big success was really because uh, it was the first really breakout rape and revenge film where uh, you had seen that kind of thing before in the Ruffy films, but um, in, in that film, you know, she gets a really particular kind of like gruesome revenge. And I think it really resonates with people, not just because it's a shocking film, but because these assholes really deserved what they got. Right. You know, kind of. <laughs> so, you know I, think, I think the movie Fight for Your Life also does that, but they do it with race. Right. But, um, you know, it's a, basically a black family. And then there's this, these people that break, break into their house. It's like a home invasion movie. And then they end up getting revenge. And there's just nothing like a good revenge film. Um, Rolling Thunder is another really great revenge film. Uh, Tarantino sort of put that out on one of his labels years ago. Yep. Rolling Thunder, written by a Paul Schrader who wrote Taxi Driver. Yep. Uh, had right. Tommy Jones in it, as well as some other really cool actors. Maybe Roland was in it. Right. Anyway, yeah, the, the, there's nothing like a good revenge film. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, like, um, and I think that, yeah, I think that... Uh, I spit on your grave, you know, after you watch this woman go through hell, you know, it's really satisfying for her to get the revenge. And so I think that's why that movie resonates with people. I think that it resonates with people because, you know, um, she, uh, um, Camille Keaton, uh, you know, plays such a cool character. I mean, her character is great. Oh, you yeah. know, like her acting is amazing. And, um, you know, like you're rooting for her, you're rooting for her to get, you know, to get this gruesome revenge. <laughs> but what what I mean specifically is that that's an example of a movie where when it was titled Day of the Woman, it didn't do well. So they changed the title uh, to I Spit on Your Grave. And that's sort of commonplace for exploitation films, right? Yeah. In fact, if you if you talk to Sam Sherman and, and or you look at these Al Adamson uh, movies, they had so many different titles. I mean, and they were just repackaged, basically. They right. would even be slightly recut and then repackaged. So, you know, they would try and sell them every which way. And that was a classic exploiteer move, too. I mean, that was nothing new when Al Adams was doing it. That was something that Grover Babb did. You know, like they would retitle a movie. They would repackage a movie. Yeah. And with Romero, it famously got them in trouble. Because he didn't get the new title, uh, Night of the Living Dead, um, trademarked or, or copywritten. Wow. And, and people were able to just, you know, show that movie 
ad nauseum or, or put it out on videotape when videotape came out, came yep. about and DVD and Blu-ray and so on. So anybody can release the movie in that living dead. Anyone can, can use the footage. We used a little footage from that living dead in Ghoul Scott zombie massacre. Cause I was just like, well, you know, we could show that. Or like, what, what do we want them watching on TV? Well, let's put on that living dead. Right. Because anybody, can <laughs> right. It because it's in the public domain and yeah. um, you know, it, it didn't go all the years and get in the public domain like some films like Nosferatu have. Right. It instead was an issue of they they changed the name. I can't remember the original name off the top of my head. Um, but they changed the name to Night of the Living Dead, and then they didn't they didn't copyright the the new name. So, yeah, the that is a, a lesson for um, filmmakers. If you're going to change the name of your <laughs> movie make sure you copyright copyright it yeah that's hilarious so would you consider european directors like jess franco or mario bava um exploitation filmmakers yeah i mean definitely well who who did you mention jess franco and mario bava well jess franco absolutely yeah i think that we uh you know, we, we had to sort of limit our focus in, in the documentary when it comes to European films, just because, you know, like that could be a whole other documentary, right. <laughs> literally make a whole documentary just on the Italian exploitation films. But yeah, I would say Giallo films really fit the bill. I would say movies like uh, Make Them Die Slowly uh, or, or any kind of um, uh, Eaten Alive. Yeah. Uh, what's um, Cannibal Holocaust? Joe any movie that Joe D'Amato made, is right. basically an imitation movie, or um, Ruggiero Deodato, Deodato, Fulci, all the guys making the Italian movies, and certainly there's you know Japanese exploitation movies, Korean exploitation yep. movies. So all the world cinema has exploitation movies, definitely. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. one I found an Indian movie from from India called Mystics in Bali. And that ah, is on that. YouTube in full, and I want to see that because I saw some clips from it. It looks hilariously insane. <laughs> it's wild. It's a little <laughs> hard to follow. I watched it at our, our Zoom movie night probably <laughs> in the last few months. And it's gory, and uh, it's kind of a story, I guess you could say. But it is a little hard to follow in terms of the translation, you know? <laughs> oh, God. The, uh, <laughs> subtitles and stuff. But it's wild. It's like Hauzu, you know? Like, oh, it's, it's that kind of like a wild ride of a, of a <laughs> like, who the hell made this kind of a movie? Yeah. Oh, my God. But, you know, well, even uh, even um, in uh, Sweden, there's um, there's a whole um, lot of exploitation movies there. And one that stands out for me, my introduction, to that was Evil Ed from the mid nineties. Uh, have you guys have you guys seen that? Evil I, Ed? I've heard it and I've seen clips. No, I don't it, think I've seen it. It's a crazy movie. Uh, basically, it's about a film editor who's cutting, uh, a, who's recutting these uh, Friday the Thirteenth like uh, movies, like the series of movies. The violence is too much for him that he becomes a crazed killer himself. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a crazy movie. And uh, the director of it, uh, he's made a whole career doing lots of films like that where they're like sort of like, uh, I guess sort of like B pictures, but I guess really they fall into exploitation films as well. But yeah, those are a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun <laughs> to watch. 
Joseph the... Sarno made a lot of movies in in Sweden. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He lived in Sweden. Um, there's a great documentary, "A Life in Dirty Movies," about Joe Sarno's career, and uh, yeah, he made he basically he made softcore pictures. He made a couple of hardcore pictures, um, like the opening of Misty Beethoven. But he he made mostly, uh, or maybe that was Radley. But Joe Sarno made maybe he made. Um, Deep Throat 2. He made a couple of um, hardcore pictures, but he went on to make softcore pictures well after there were hardcore pictures. Like, well, you know, going into the 80s, he was still making softcore pictures. And if you talk to him about sort of, you know, his view on sexuality, he was he had a very European view. Like, he mm. felt like uh, sex was just, you know, a part of life, a part of uh, nature. Mm. And when he... Uh, would have actors act in his films often they were really having sex but he just wasn't filming it so he would just film their faces and he really particularly liked to film orgasms like but he would film the face so like (laughs) um you know a movie like uh what's it called um laura oh gosh there's a lot of great titles of joe sarno movies butterflies is looking at uh, anyway, the, he had a particular actress that played Laura, and she's she's with Eric Edwards in a bunch of his films, and she's just so fun to watch, like have an orgasm. <laughs> you know that they're actually having sex, which is kind of cool. Yeah, he's uh, obviously in a softcore movie that could have just been faking it, but yeah, he. Um, <laughs> He would shoot these movies with with hardcore movie actors like a, uh, like a Jamie Gillis, who's in our film, or Eric Edwards, and um, then he would just film faces, and that's what he liked to do. And all his movies are like um, psychodramas, basically, similar to mm-hmm. uh, Andy Milligan. Like all right. his movies, are just like plays, you know, they're just like melodramas and 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 things that happen between families or between friends or between people and that's true of joe sarno all his movies i mean they're you know they're not i think he made maybe one horror film like they're all just these dramas you know that kind of unfold with little comedic things too but they're just psychodramas or melodramas you know more or less like um like plays really and and that's true of um they're putting out a big box set um severin of um andy milligan who's another filmmaker that we talk about in the documentary who's a really cool exploitation filmmaker from that time period and he would use the same group of actors very much like a like a playhouse would and they would just be in all of his different films and really cool um exploitation filmmakers came from the theater like uh, Stuart Gordon came from the Organic Theater in Chicago. Oh, yeah. He was a real um, working with actors. Uh, really, really pleasure to work with him on King of the Ants. Nice. He also came to our film festival and we showed Dagon and Reanimator. Wow. He really nice. uh, had a great sense nice. for actors. Um, and I met Joe Sarno, although we, we didn't shoot an interview, unfortunately. But I met Joe Sarno um, when I was living in New York and. He, he would, they were showing uh, a couple of his movies at the Pioneer Theater in New York. And uh, yeah, he told great stories. We went out to dinner and he told really fun stories about um, that's awesome living in Sweden, Swedish women, like what, what he thought of you know, Swedish women, and, <laughs> the, the, um, 
free sexuality in Sweden that he really enjoyed, and his wife, Peggy. That's another person I really want to interview now is his wife, Peggy, is still around. So if anyone listening has a contact for Peggy Sarna, um, she's she was really influential in making all of his movies. Like, they were like a team. Wow. That's amazing. What can you tell us about Russ Meyer? And, and, you know, he's very important, too, in in the genre, especially with Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, I think, is one of his most famous, right? Yeah, I would call Faster Pussycat Kill Kill like the most standout Ruffy film because it twisted the Ruffy. You know, the Ruffy was usually a violence against women kind of a film. And he turned that over on its head by having all these really powerful women, um, you know, murdering men and who really deserved it too. And it was, it was um, yeah, it was a total twist on the Ruffy. Uh, and it was black and white, like all the famous Ruffies, like Dave's The Defilers is a really famous one, or The right. Pickup. Uh, this one really, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is probably the most well-known famous Ruffy film. But he worked in the same genres that Doris did, and Dave and, and Herschel did. He made um, you know, the Nudie Cuties, the early films of his, like in the Nudie Cutie vein. And then he went on to make more like sexploitation movies, like Up, or which even had some like you know more hardcore elements to it. Uh, but he also made movies like Mondo Topless, which is clearly just a sexploitation film. Right. Vixen Vixen is almost like similar to Joe Sarno in that it's like a big melodrama, you know, kind of a film with, with a lot of violence and action. Or Motor Psycho is his, his biker film. Yeah. He kind of touched on all the different genres, just like Ted and just like Ray and just like Al Adamson and, and, and Andy Milligan and Doris and all the sort of, you know, the well-known exploitation filmmakers. Uh, Russ's touch, of course, everyone knows, was that he liked big-breasted women. (laughs) (laughs) um, He liked to film in the desert. You know, he he lived out by Palm Springs, and he liked to film in the desert out there. It's beautiful landscapes. Um, But, yeah, of course, you know, what's memorable about um, his films is Taurus Satana's performances, all the different actors and actresses that he had really great performances and you know i mean action movies uh, essentially or you know movies with with a lot of drama and a lot of action and a lot of big boobs and sex <laughs> and also infamously worked with uh, roger ebert oh yeah that's right yeah and, um, uh, beyond um, the valley of the dolls beyond the valley of the dolls right which uh Many don't realize that uh, Ebert uh, had written that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, that that was someone that I'd like to interview is is the Z Man who's still around um, from uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. Oh wow. And he, that was a really cool performance. Um, and I think that yeah, that movie uh, because it was 20th Century Fox the audience than uh, even Pastor Pussycat did. And it was, it was kind of a crossover into a more mainstream film, but it still had the sensibilities of exploitation. Right, right. Right, right. So how would you categorize something like Caligula, where you've got, you know, John Gielgud and Malcolm McDowell and Peter O'Toole and Helen Mirren, but it's, it's this practically X-rated movie. Would you consider that an exploitation film with all these major movie stars? Yeah, I think that that was similar to 
Beyond the Valley of the Dolls in that it was Tinto Brass's, you know, like crossover movie where he was able to have some star power. He had gotten a lot of cachet making Salon Kitty or some of his like um, more uh, exploitation style, low budget or fair. And of course, he was focused on the ass. Everyone knows that also. <laughs> Russ Meyer focused on the big boobs. And he was focused on the nice ass. And he, uh, I mean, that was sort of his trademark, right? And he, he, you know, of course, he did that in Caligula as well. But yeah, I think Caligula is sort of is one of those movies that stands out because it's kind of an art film as well. You know, it's it's definitely an exploitation film, right? But also is an art film. And there's a handful of those. Um, in fact, you know, that's why we call them art theaters. You know, ultimately, uh, art theaters would show exploitation movies, just like drive-ins and grindhouses did. But they would also show art movies. And there was definitely crossover. Radley Metzger's movies, um, as much as they were, you know, pornography, they were also art films. Um, same thing with Caligula. Or, you know, most of Tinto Brass's movies are quite artistic, actually. Right. And European sensibility, they seem to be influenced by uh, Italian neorealism, Fellini, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really think that uh, you could you can be both an art film and an exploitation film at the same time. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. You mentioned the grindhouses. Now, can you explain to our audience what a grindhouse theater is? And is the, is it just a place where exploitation films played? Or is there a difference between a quote-unquote grindhouse film versus an exploitation film? Sure, yeah. We did an interview recently with a guy named 42nd Street Pete, who really kind of came of age um, going to the grindhouse cinemas at the deuce on 42nd street times square in new york he lived in new jersey but he would drive in and and watch these uh movies and yeah there was a rough crowd at the grindhouses that was sort of part of it you know there was definitely drugs there was definitely prostitution uh the major grindhouses were 42nd street the deuce um, in that surrounding area and that's shown really well in like taxi driver for example right in the scenes where he takes the girl to the to the film de niro but the um there were also ones on hollywood boulevard the the pussycat chain which uh was actually dave and dan sunny dave friedman and dan sunny had the pussycat theater chain those were essentially grindhouse um, cinemas because they would show exploitation movies eventually they showed adult films like you know in the in the late 70s and early 80s uh, as well, and they would show them basically all day and into the night. They would have very little time where they weren't showing movies. Um, there was always, you know, matinees, and then they would have late night screenings as well. So, and some of the ones in New York never closed. Really, you know, they were always a place to to go. And then some of the ones in like downtown LA, which Eric Caden uh, from the Hollywood Book and Poster we have in our movie talks about. He said he would have to wear like a homeless disguise. Disguise <laughs> <laughs> when he went to the ones in downtown LA because a lot of it was just really rough, sort of um, you know homeless population, like just looking for a place to spend the night cheaply, huh. and they they could they could spend three three bucks and spend the night in in the grindhouse theater you know like and you know maybe get some sleep wow <laughs> so, you know there's there's everything there's the homeless 
place to sleep. And then there was also drugs and prostitution and sex and <laughs> everything you can imagine and a rough crowd or fights, you know, like happening. Uh, and then there were people like 42nd street Pete who really just loved the movies. You know, he just, <laughs> he had a few friends that liked the movies and they would go all the time and see everything they could see. You know, it's basically like when I was a kid at the video store, right. Growing up, you know, um, or teenager growing up near New York and he could drive into the deuce and he could see three, three movies. And that was what he did. So, so are grindhouse but, films and exploitation films one in the same? Uh, yeah. Grindhouse is usually, um, referring to the theater where okay. the exploitation movies show, but sometimes people use the term grindhouse for movies now too. That's kind of evolved. Um, okay. similar to B movie. I think that sort of terminology has evolved. Right, and so now people that are talking about grindhouse are talking about exploitation. It's really the same. Hmm. Interesting. So, w- what sort of challenges did you have in in trying to pull this documentary together? I mean, you mentioned that it's been taking you like fourteen years. You know, w- what were the biggest challenges? You know, I guess being a completist is a challenge, or you know, wanting to complete—that's <laughs> um, a big challenge. You know, money. Thank, thankfully, we just had a very successful Kickstarter campaign and we raised almost $17,000 wow. um, to finish our film. So that's not going to be such a challenge, but you know, um, it is expensive making a film, even a documentary because you've got to license the footage or you've got to prove that you can use the footage from uh, various sources in a fair use uh, way. So we've got to get a fair use lawyer and we've got to license footage so that, you know, that ends up being expensive and that's a challenge. You know, just just trying to include everyone's voice has been a challenge because, you know, the, a lot of these people are busy, uh, they, you know, not responded to requests for interview. And we've just sort of had to um, go various ways about trying to track them down, you know, because they're busy people. Right. I think eventually we will get an interview with Lloyd and we will get an interview with Charlie Band and we will get an interview with some of the people that I think we should really be included that were missing, Roberta Finlay. And then some people, you know, we just have to live without because they not they don't want to be in the limelight anymore. Uh, Frank Hennenlotter, for example, has done very few interviews and very few appearances. Huh. Just he's not interested in doing that. Uh, you know, even though he's so well-spoken on the subject. And it would be very cool to do a, a nice interview with Frank Hennenlotter. I've also got to respect his privacy, and, you know, respect the fact that he doesn't want to be in, you know, every documentary that asks him to be in it. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's other people that are really glad to talk about their experiences and very easy to work with. Um, William Griffay is thrilled, I think, that there's this resurgence uh, of interest in his films. Dave Friedman was thrilled that there was a resurgence of interest in his films. Uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis was thrilled to have us come to Florida and, and film him in his in his house nice. in Florida. So yeah. you know, it, it really kind of depends on the person, and it just depends on you know some people are harder to track down and 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 for whatever reason you know uh, especially right now when you know show up at somebody's house or you know, <laughs> a little trickier you know to 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 have in person communication right now so. 
you know, that's made it tricky too. Like um, the pandemic has made it tricky to, to film because we've got to do it outside and there's certain noises um, outside in, in any location. Mm. And then, you know, doing it online also has its share of difficulties. So yeah, that's um, been challenging uh, in the last year. But yeah, there's there's been... Really, it's just been a collecting phase, and now we're really into the editing phase and and the putting it together phase. And just we want to reach a broader audience. We want to reach people um, who are not already interested in exploitation movies because uh, we think this is a really pivotal part of film history. So if you're interested in film at all, you know, like um, you would want to you would want to hear this story. I mean, everyone that went, everyone that watched Mank on, on um, Netflix should be interested also in this story that, you know, are these exploitation filmmakers were just as important as, as Orson Welles. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's exactly why we had you on the show is because we're trying to expose the younger generation to the cool stuff that they missed out on. And exploitation films is one of those things. Mm. yeah for sure yeah the younger generation are active on those uh vinegar syndrome groups i'm on on facebook so a lot of young kids really love um collecting blu-rays they really love those slip covers for whatever reason they're, <laughs> they're just as nerdy about it as i was so like and i'm talking 18 19 year old kids you right. know, very active on those groups uh severin to arrow yep uh shout factory there's a whole bunch of um, yeah. companies that Mill are Creek. Really cool stuff and uh yeah there's a bunch of kids that are interested nice part of for the kickstarter we did a big tiktok campaign and that brought a bunch of people into the fold that supported us on kickstarter and those are all you know basically teenage kids on, on tiktok so that's cool now despite the covid um are you still trying to look at some sort of theatrical release for for the movie yeah, I'm hoping by the time that we're finished, which would be the end of this year, and then we would have to get distribution. So I can't imagine the movie coming out before, like, summer of 2022. So I'm hoping by that, we're back in theaters, and, and um, we can do some film festival stuff with it, and also, you know, do a really cool L.A. premiere Great. Uh, for the film, so yeah. that we, we can show it theatrically. Yeah, and I would love for it to play in, you know, the art theaters in the country that show... Um, documentaries you know which isn't a ton but like as much theatrical as we could get would be great yeah hmm. oh yeah i have a connection up here with a local drive-in and they were doing killer business last year they were open all the way till december and we're in maine and it was insane so you know definitely you know hit me up when you're ready to to release and i'll talk to this guy oh that's great yeah um i'm trying to think of one of my uh buddies on facebook is from maine <laughs> Who's <laughs> a, a huge something weird uh, fan? In oh, fact, nice. he's in touch with a couple of people like this, Andy Romanoff. Oh, cool! Yeah, he's in ba- uh, Bang Banger, I think it is. Bangor, yeah, that's uh, that's like two hours north of me. But so, um, um, in terms of ex- exploitation films, you know, some are good, some are not so good. What would you consider like the best of the best, and which ones are so awful they're unwatchable? <laughs> uh, the best of the best. So definitely Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs are are really pivotal, fun exploitation movies. Uh, definitely um, check out Astro Zombies, The Corpse Grinders, 
uh, Girl in Gold Boots. I think those, uh, as far as Ted's films, are, are the cream of the crop. Jack Hill, uh, check out Spider Baby, uh, check out Coffee, Foxy Brown, Big Bird Cage. Uh, those are really phenomenal. Roger Corman, you want to check out Rock and Roll High School and uh, Eating Raul and um, uh, Death Race 2000. Uh, Russ Meyer, I would watch Vixen. I would watch Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And I would watch, I like Motorcycle a lot. That's sort of underrated. But I would watch uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Ars Doris, Nude on the Moon is a lot of fun. Uh, Another Day, Another Man. Any of her roughy pictures. <laughs> uh, if, if you like roughies, check out The Pickup, Love Camp 7, You'll See Wolf of the SS, yep. Nazi Exploitation. That's probably the most grand example. And Dodd and Vince is also in the documentary. Nice. Uh, uh, Blood Sucking Freaks. Yep. Reads them. It's, you know, stellar. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then again, you said bad. Like his movie Bloodbath is pretty unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> Night of the Zombies. Ugh. I like Jamie Gillis, but yeah, the movie's a little unwatchable. That's something we re- <laughs> we visited at a movie night recently. Um, you know, some of these newer movies on Amazon Prime, like uh, Lamageddon, <laughs> <laughs> pretty unwatchable. Like you know, I mean, fun in you know, for ten minutes, it's fun, but like you know. Whole- film of that yeah right uh you know some of al adamson's movies god bless him like i can't i can hardly sit through uh dracula versus frankenstein a lot of people like that movie and it does have you know like uh what's his name in it who's who's aging at the time and and uh, cool you know cool performance and props that they got him um, uh lon juni uh, lon cheney jr right oh, okay um, but yeah i mean I actually prefer, as, as far as Al Adamson, like Satan Sadist is a lot of fun. That's a biker exploitation movie. Yeah. There's a movie called Carnival Magic that they did on, on Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. Watch Mystery Science. It's, it's really funny. It's, yeah. really funny. <laughs> it's a good introduction to Al Adamson, even, you know, like, you know, just for the laughs of the Mystery Science. Andy Milligan. Let's see. I mean, Andy Milligan had such a cool career. Oh yeah, I would. Uh, um, Thirsty Butchers, I would say, is a lot of fun because it's you know straight up horror film. Yeah, but who else am I thinking of? There's a lot of great uh, directors, and uh, oh, um, Joe Sarnum. Yep. Inga, I say Inga is probably one of his best movies. Well, and then we've got uh, the the more modern directors, you know, sort of taking on the torch like Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah, you know that that's another sort of chapter in our film is a lot of people ask them that question and they talk about their reaction to the grindhouse double feature that was put out a while back by uh tarantino and rodriguez and the fun little trailers that came in the middle and stuff like the the retro trailers yeah machete I think a lot of attention to you know what is what's grindhouse and mainstream attention and i you know i i know for a fact that tarantino is a huge exploitation movie fan mm-hmm. he, bought the, he bought the theater in la just so he could you know show exploitation movies basically <laughs> like he bought the theater and he's got a ton of prints i mean he's got literally i think thousands of 35 yeah. prints. 
Wow. And he's got a guy he just hires to, to, to take care of his prints. I mean, like a full-time job, just taking care of his, you know, theater and his <laughs> and, and like amazing. restoring stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's like Jay Leno and his cars, basically. Right. So, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, Tarantino is obviously a huge fan of the subject and someone we would love to get even, you know, 20 minutes of interview with, who's obviously also a really busy guy and like, you know, is asked to do a million things. So, right. right. Um, But yeah, he, he, it is a subject that is clearly dear to him. So do you feel that with this film, you've just skimmed the surface or do you think there are a lot more tales to be told regarding exploitation films? Well, some people have said this should be a whole doc series, you know, and I'm not opposed to that. Like, you know, if we, if we made the doc and then we pitched it to Netflix or something and they wanted to do a whole doc series, I wouldn't be opposed to that. There's definitely enough material, you know, there you could do, I don't know, 40 minutes or even an hour on each filmmaker. Really? You know, you could yeah. do yeah. On Doris, you could do an hour on Roberta Finlay. You could do an hour on Russ. You could do an hour, you know, you could do an hour on Al Adamson, you know, and, and you could do a doc series like that. And I'm certainly wouldn't be opposed to that. That would be really cool. In fact, David Gregory would be a great person to partner with on something like that. Like, especially if they, if it was as big as like Eli Roth's um, horror um, doc series they did recently. Oh yeah. The history of horror. Then I would probably need someone to partner with because I couldn't even do all the research and everything myself, you know, like it would take uh, history of horror. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it would be, you know, uh, we could have someone be the face of it. Eli Roth is is definitely not a good person because he's having a big <laughs> Me Too moment right now. But like, someone, uh, you know, someone that um, you know, I don't know, someone like Pam Greer would be a really cool face of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there would be a lot of really cool options as to being the face of, of the show. I mean, it could be someone like Joe Bob Briggs or oh yeah, oh yeah, you know. That'd be phenomenal. Um, someone who has that sort of host hosting capability. If it was a smaller thing, I think Debbie Roshan would make great host. She hosts a ton of stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And she's articulate and smart. Also bring Stevens, who we interviewed uh, um, in my backyard. Like she was absolutely like um, studied, you know, with exploitation. And I didn't, wasn't necessarily expecting that. Wow. She, knew her stuff and so i was like oh okay well i can ask you all these questions because <laughs> <laughs> i was going to ask her mainly about her career but like she was very knowledgeable about everything from kroger bab to all the different sort of subgenres and things like that that's incredible yeah so she's a great host of something too so chris uh, do you have any more questions for eric here um uh, no not at the moment i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing this it sounds like you've covered a lot of ground <laughs> so that uh certainly looking forward to seeing that great thanks it's, it's wonderful yeah. to meet you chris both of you yeah yeah, yeah. Likewise. When, do you uh, when yeah. do you think this will be released i think you may have mentioned it earlier in the show Ball, i think we'll ballpark. probably what's that ballpark oh yeah i think that we, we, we're gonna have an edit by the end of the year and so I think that we would be looking at festivals um, early next year, and then we would be looking for a wider sort of release, like by um, summer of 2022, realistically. 
Nice, nice. Well, Eric, it's been a real pleasure talking with you about your film and exploitation movies in general. And like like um, Chris said, we can't wait to see it. So yeah. um, where can people find information about the movie online? Uh, exploitthisthemovie.com. They can see the trailer uh, or the promo that we've got. Um, and yeah, like I said, we just we just had a smash successful Kickstarter campaign. So, um, but they could get connected with me. There's also a Facebook group and an Instagram for the movie. So it's just exploit this, the movie, uh, you could, you could find the Facebook group there. Uh, if you want to join the Facebook group, then we can, you know, send out the newest information about the movie to you. Uh, there's also a Facebook page. Uh, there's a group for the fans and there's a page sort of for the business of it. And then there's also an Instagram. Um, so yeah, reach out on social media or, or go to the website, which is exploitthisthemovie.com. And you could email me uh, through the website. Uh, you can email our producer Kay through the website. And you can also uh, reach both of us um, on Instagram and on Facebook, Twitter, all the sort of, um, Oh, even TikTok. <laughs> Excellent. We've got the uh, uh, social media platforms uh, for the movie. So you can reach out on social media or you can reach out through the website and send me a direct email through the through the Exploit This website. Excellent. 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 And we're so happy to have you on the show. And, um, you know, we'd love to have you come on again, especially when it gets closer to release and help you promote it further. That would be wonderful. Thank Absolutely. you guys so much. So, Chris, can you tell the nice listeners how they can find you online? Uh, yes, uh, I am on uh, social media as well, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under my company name, Stories in Motion, so you can find me on there, or on my website, www.storiesmotion.com. Awesome, awesome. Once again, thank you guys so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have today for Then Is Now podcast. We hope you learned a lot about exploitation films, and we encourage you to seek them out. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.
Miss Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.